the story of Cain and Abel is not the most Christmassy thing I can imagine. Advent's not Christmas. Advent is the time of knowing with certainty that Jesus is coming to save. And this certainty looks both backward and forward at the same time. At the moment, for us, backward to the end of the world that we just left two weeks ago with the last Sunday of the church year, Christ the King. And forward to Christmas, the day we remember Christ the King's birth among us as mortal men. So backwards and forwards, and now truly in history reversed, so that Christmas is looking back in time to the reign of Caesar Augustus when all the world went to be taxed each to his hometown. And so Joseph takes his bride down to Bethlehem and Judea. And then looking forward to a very real end of the world in which we believe that what this Christ our Lord accomplished will be brought forth for all creation to see. We ourselves, the first fruits, raised from the dead and immortal. In this end, this year of going through the Old Testament, trying to found our firm stand here in Rockford on the enduring word of God and the history of being his people that's about much more than remembering Dr. Martin Luther and some nails he put in a door, uh, much more than remembering about how we're part of this confessing Missouri Synod church body that worldwide is known for standing on scripture and particularly that battle about 50 years ago where we almost lost the Bible. But we as a church body said no to liberal progressivism and the idea that the Bible has errors and stood firm on the belief that this inspired, without error word of God is sufficient for faith and life. And so in some ways separated ourselves from much of what we see going on culturally. It's about more than that. It's about being not only connected to Dr. Walther and Dr. Luther, but to the early church, the martyrs, the saints, the fathers, and then further back than that, to the people of God in Israel in their exile, waiting for a return to Jerusalem where the Messiah would come, and further back to our brother David and our brother Solomon and their life in the faith, hoping for God and his promises to be fulfilled to them, and further back from them to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Joseph and all the tribes of Israel, Further back still to Noah and his sons. And further back still, all the way to where, as we looked at just this last Sunday, we start, I almost say story, but that makes it sound too false. We start the history of our life as humans with the breaking of the world. And that this is, uh, this is so real and tangible a thing. This is not just a myth or an idea this is what happened. It's why things are the way they are. And again, I won't go much into what we talked about on Sunday, the thorns, the thistles, the sweat, the pain in family, and the pain in marriage and relationships, and the death that comes from it all. That's the setup. And now, from this point on, all the way to Easter and beyond, we're going to be following that history to the life of the church, following the history of the Old Testament, that we might know these saints of old, not just as Bible stories, but as our heritage and our history. I don't know how you feel about your particular heritage and history. Mine is a, a, a mishmash of Norse and German and Scottish. 
And Scottish sounds the most interesting to me, but it's also the smallest. And German's the biggest, but I don't have any German in my names. Uh, I, I have a Norse last name, Fisk, which means, if you know your Ludafisk, it's half of it, fish. It means fish. It's not the most masculine last name I could hope for. Um, and my middle name is McAdam, which is the Scottish uh, in me. Uh, but, but in any case, all three of those bloodlines, and I got a smattering of other ones in me too, all three of them are not nearly so true a family line as the line of Adam and Seth and Noah and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and David and Solomon and Zerubbabel and Jesus who by means of his flesh and blood has joined with me personally and physically to give me a heritage far better than the one of death I've inherited just from my parents. So learning this history is about learning our family story, our family legacy and heritage, and how each of us in this room is more tied tightly to each other than to any of our blood relatives who are outside of the faith and reject Christ. With all that said, as way too long of an introduction, we won't have time to hit every piece of the Old Testament in the few weeks of the year that we'll have. But in Advent and in Lent, we're going to get a little extra taste where we can go to the side and pick up something that you know is there and at least tie it in. And so we do get to pick up Cain and Abel this week. And then I believe next week, uh, we'll be looking at the Tower of Babel. And while again, Cain and Abel may not sound like the most Christmassy or even Adventy thing, it is about whether or not you're waiting for salvation. It is about whether or not you believe that the Christ is coming. And the, the key to this is, is two things. One is, who does Cain think he is? And then the other one is, why is Abel doing what he's doing? I'm going to try to come back to those thoughts here. But to maybe get into that, another question that I know you've heard before and something tells me if you've heard it, you've heard it with the wrong answer and you maybe even have thought up the wrong answer yourself. Because when it comes to questions of salvation, being inherently sinners as we are, we like to think up the wrong answer and not the right answer. So the question is, why did God receive Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's sacrifice? What is the reason they, they both bring something to God. They both offer it before him in fire. And to one of them, God says, you know, bueno. And the other one, he says, muy mal, right? very bad. Why is that? And the only answer I've ever heard given outside of very rare Lutheran preaching is because Abel brought the best and Cain brought the secondary. And so Abel brought a good sacrifice, and Cain, uh, he, he really didn't, he didn't have a heart in it. He didn't really give all that he could give. Now that sounds so right on the surface. It sounds so right because our ears are tuned by our sin to believe that the right answer is always one of, now follow me on this difficult phrase, justification by works. And so if we say, well, Abel brought the full first fruit sacrifice, it means he did the good work. 
And if we say that Cain brought the secondary sacrifice and kept back the best for himself, it means he did a bad work. And so Abel by good works is justified and Cain by bad works is condemned. Now hopefully you're enough Lutheran by this point to know something's off if you're saying you're going to be justified by your good works, right? You know that that's not what we're supposed to be saying. And the reason we're not supposed to be saying that is that it tramples on salvation by grace, which ultimately is to trample on salvation at all. It's to say that salvation is not salvation. Salvation is you pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. If you're drowning in a pool and you get a cramp, you're going down, you're screaming for help, and somebody swims to you and grabs you and pulls you out, you would never say, well, that's because I was so good at calling for help, or that's because I was so good at lying still and not doing anything so that you were able to pull me out. You have no works in salvation, if the word means salvation. And the moment you try to have works in salvation, I mean, the analogy is quite fair, what happens if you try to help the person saving you while you're drowning in the pool? Well, what they told me, at least, I never tried it, what they told me is you're both going to drown. You're both going to go down. So you can't save yourself by your works. Which means, then, you can't look at this story of Cain and Abel, this history of Cain and Abel, and say that the answer is one had good works and one didn't, which means you can't say it was a good sacrifice and a bad sacrifice based on the heart bringing the best or the second best. So then what is it? Now, what's different? And for this, you have to remember a little bit of what came before in the story. Now, I don't know at first service on Sunday if I hit this as well. In second service, I think I got to it. But the last two verses that were left on aren't normally read when Genesis 3 is read. And they're the verses about how God makes new clothing for Adam and his new-named wife Eve out of animals instead of out of fig leaves. And how that new clothing isn't just about how it's warmer or how about it covers the body better than sown leaves would do. It's about how God is showing them that the real penalty for salvation from their shame is going to be a blood sacrifice. And from that blood sacrifice demonstrated to them and covering them, all of the promises about the son who will be born to crush the head of the serpent flow with a connection to sacrifices. Why on earth would Cain and Abel be making sacrifices at all? Have you ever thought about that? What could compel them to do this? Were they just making it up on their own? Well, then it certainly wouldn't please God. I mean, why would they think that going and killing animals just for fun and throwing the blood at God would make him happy? So you do have to read between the lines a little bit with what you know from what comes later in the Bible, which is that these sacrifices are here as a foreshadowing of Christ's death on the cross, which God must surely have told them to do. Which answers another question here, one that maybe you never thought about. I, I'll confess, I didn't think about it till about a year or two ago. Why is, why is Abel raising animals at all? He can't eat them. You know that, right? You're not allowed to eat them at this point. We are not given to eat of the animals until after Genesis 6 and the flood. When God does something, whether it's miraculous or otherwise, to allow us to eat the animals. We're not supposed to before that. So clearly, he's not raising them to eat them. Why is he raising them? 
And the answer, I think, again, is evident from the slaughtering of the animals to cover them with the blood. He's raising them for sacrifice because God told them to. Because that's God's promise of salvation being foreshadowed and signed for them until Christ comes. And this will only be picked up again by later fathers. I can add one more to you if, you, if this is not enough to convince you. Because Noah is supposed to take animals on the ark. And we'll get to this actually in a couple weeks. But he's supposed to take animals on the ark. And you know from the songs, right? They went in two by two or twosie by twosie. I don't remember. Forty daisy daisies. I know we sing it that way. Nighty nighties. They go in two by two. But it's not all two by two. He's also supposed to take in seven of every clean animal. What's a clean animal? Well, according to later books of the Bible that haven't been written by the time Noah is there, a clean animal is one that's good enough or right or authorized by God's, maybe the best way to say it, it's authorized as a sacrifice in order to atone for and cover their sins. Noah knows what these are before Leviticus has ever come to pass where the term is defined. So what does this mean? This means that before the flood, at least, God's religion that later is picked up by Judaism and then is Christianity was already there and given to them to follow. And that Abel is raising clean animals for sacrifice because God has said, someday I'm going to send a savior. And until then, the picture of that savior is this animal dead with its blood on you. Again, this is Christ, his cross, and the supper that today fulfills that, right? By going into you directly. And then this helps us understand what really went wrong with the sacrifice. Why was Cain's rejected? But before we get to that, let's look at one more little piece here. Because I asked the question earlier, who does Cain think that he is? Yes? And... and it's, you have to be attentive to our first verse. Adam knew Eve. Remember, this is life. Dirt guy knows life, marital sense, his wife. And she conceives and bears Cain and says these words, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, you're just going to have to take my word for it on this one. But early in Genesis, the Hebrew is... Um, caveman-esque. And, and I would actually say Hebrew generally is a little caveman-esque, but it's more so than normal. There are incomplete sentences and kind of stuttery half-phrases that happen in a few places, and this is one of them. So the Hebrew that Eve exclaims over her son is not quite so fluid as our English here. She doesn't say quite all of that. She says, I have gotten a man, the Lord. I have a man, the Lord. That's all she says. And so the translators have tried to make some sense of that, and they, they think what she means is that by the help of God, she's given birth to a son, as God promised eventually would happen. That's fine, but I'm going to suggest to you that her original kind of caveman speak isn't so caveman-y as it is straight up a confession of what she believes. She's received a promise that from her womb will come the savior of the world, a child born to crush the head of the devil. She conceives. She gives birth to a son. She looks at him and she says, behold, here he is. I have received a man who is the Lord God. Which would show they believe that the one who would be born would be the son of God. So I'm, I'm assuming that. 
But now follow the story with me here for a moment. So imagine you give birth to somebody who you think is the savior of the whole world. I mean, I think my kids are talented. But uh, that's really saying something if you know that they're the son of God too, right? And imagine this kid's growing up and his whole life growing up, you're telling him, so you know, Cain, you're the savior of the world. You know this, right? You're going you're gonna to fix it all someday. Right now, things are wrong. Right now, we need these blood sacrifices. But someday, you're going to do something different that changes everything and makes it the way it's supposed to be. Now, if you were saying this to Jesus of Nazareth, he would have taken it in a good way and done the right thing, I'm sure. But this is not Jesus of Nazareth. This is just another person like you or I. And you can imagine the kind of big head he got as he began to believe that it was his task to replace the sacrifices God had established with his own. And so what does he do? He goes and he tills the earth. And he brings forth from the earth fruits, as man was created to do. And he gives those to God and says, look, behold, a better sacrifice. And God does not accept it because it's not his job to bring a better sacrifice. It is not his ability or his capability. He is the wrong man for the job. He is misguided. And he has put his faith not in the promise, which is also to save him, but in himself. And in so doing, has removed the promise that is attached to the blood. And so God says, no, Cain, it's not for you. Abel's got the right thing. Stick with the blood sacrifice. Now we can fast forward through the whole story. You know how it turns out. We just heard it read. How does Cain handle the rejection of his self-justification? With anger and rage. Same way that we do whenever someone challenges our idols. We blame them for it rather than ourselves for it. And this leads to a fulfillment of the curse ahead of its time. Remember how God said, from dust you were taken to dust you shall return. God's going to take care of killing us all eventually. But what happens in the life of these humans is they can't even wait for that. And so Cain goes and he slaughters his brother in the field. Murders the one who was faithful and shows himself to be anything but the Savior. One in need of saving. Now, That is what you want to take from this. That we can't save ourselves. That when we place our hope in ourselves and our works, the result is rage, enmity, and death. And that our only hope is what God has established as the promises to be fulfilled by Jesus. And of old, they looked to that through the slaughtering of these animals Today, it's accomplished. There are no more sacrifices to be made because Christ is finished. It is complete. And so today, we don't look forward but back to what has been done, trusting in the new signs of water, bread, and wine to be his binding of us to that coming kingdom for which we wait during this Advent. Cling to that as the story moves forward. And just to close a a tidbit here and there, what you see moving through the rest of Genesis 4 is the catalog of the destruction of humanity that we always work when left to our own devices. So whether you're dealing with Tubal-Cain or, I've lost his name, Lamech, who takes for himself two wives, notice, by the way, how quickly with the decline of civilization and sin, the definition of marriage gets changed. Uh, Whether you're dealing with one or the other of those, and the gradual and moved need for God to destroy the entire earth. What the real point of this section is to show is that without the promises, without faith and trust in the blood, all we have is hatred and murder 
for each other. So in this Advent tide, as those who've been redeemed from this, bought back from this by Christ the crucified, we ponder just how much like Cain we really are. And we thank God that we're also quite a bit like Abel. For we've been brought into the sheepfold. We've been brought into the place where we know the blood that speaks a better blood than the word of Abel or than the blood of Abel. The word that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We know the Christ who fulfilled all these things. We beat our breasts and say, Lord, preserve us from our sinful condition, from the pride which would seek to set aside your word. And then we thank God that insofar as we are aware today, that faith in the promises and the sacrifices has been given. That's why you're here. No need to walk out afraid. Walk out comforted and filled with knowledge that you are in Christ. Fully aware of the battle you fight in your heart, in the world, and on behalf of the church as well. In the name of Jesus, amen.